I've never had a for the chime before. <laughs> This is a place where all of you is welcome. Your sharp mind, your acerbic wit, your faulty memory, your trick knee, even, I swear I didn't plan this just like that, your hacking cough. <laughs> All of you is welcome. The parts of you that are easy for you to live with and the parts you struggle with. This is a place where all of you is welcome. Where you don't need to hide the fact that you can't remember names to save your life or that walking up the stairs is difficult. We don't want your ready-for-presentation self. We want you, yourself, to be here. Your whole self. This is a place where all of you is welcome. And where we want to get to know you.
And welcome to the Washington Ethical Society. I'm Karen Schofield Leka. My preferred pronouns are per and pers, shorthand for person. And I'm so glad you are here this morning, whether you're in the room or joining us via our Facebook Live feed. Visitors and guests, we hope that you got a blue name tag. That actually helps us get to know you a little better. We can welcome you warmly and answer any questions you might have. We, of course, love talking about what drew us to this community and what we love so much about it, but we really are eager to hear what it is that you are looking for that's brought you here today. Um, so please join us after the platform service for there's coffee and cookies in the lobby, but today is actually Waffle Day. And if you have not been here before on Waffle Day, you are in for a terrific treat. Our teens make waffles for a small donation. You get to munch, chat with folks. It's really delicious, and it supports their good works as well. Um, so after the platform service, we hope that you'll join us for that and chat among us. Thank you very much. We also hope that you will consider um, uh, filling out this gold slip that you find in your program. Um, it lets us send you a kind of a weekly update about the activities that are coming up to which you are most welcome to participate. And you can just drop that in the basket when it passes later in the service. I want to remind everyone to please silence your electronic devices um, so that you can be wholly present today and that lets your neighbors also be fully here in the space. Um, but if you'd like, while you have it in your fingers, you could uh, check in on social media. And now I invite Josh Blinder to read our statement of purpose so that we might hear our shared values in each other's voices. Josh is actually a graduate of the West Sunday School. And so this month we are actually honoring Sunday School teachers and graduates. And so we are kicking that off with Josh this morning. The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith in human goodness, we appreciate every person's worth and unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. We invite you to join our community of children and adults as we work for a world where love and justice cross all borders. Thanks, Josh. And as Josh lights our community candle, I invite you all to join me in the candle lighting words. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all. Oh, that's right. <laughs> My bad. Yes, indeed. indeed. The faulty memory at play. So each week, we ring this bell in solidarity with people around the world. Today, especially thinking of the thousands of asylum seekers who are stranded at the Mexico border. As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and the world around us. Let us hold in our hearts all that hurts in the world.
and let us commit ourselves to all that calls for our work and our love. I invite you now into a time of meditation. Settle into your seat, relaxing your body, and finding a comfortable, balanced way to sit. Take a big breath in and let it out. Continue to breathe deeply and evenly, feeling the rhythm of your breath. This morning, we will be doing a singing meditation. It's a Buddhist metta meditation, a style where a series of phrases are repeated again and again, growing from a small focus to an ever larger area of compassion. The words will be on the screen. We invite you to join in with the singing or if you prefer, simply let the music wash over you. After we finish singing together, we'll have a period of silence.
all be whole indeed. I love that particular singing meditation. It's one that I actually am able to access in the moments when I really need a singing meditation. You know what I mean? Maybe you've had those moments. Um, and, um, and I'm so grateful we are going to be singing that um, all month. That is our song of the month, which often here we do as our closing song. We're trying something a little different and inviting a different way for you all to engage um, with the theme and with the, um, with the meditation time as well. And I believe that our children will be learning the song as well um, downstairs in their classrooms. Uh, so I'm sure by the end of the month, we are all going to be just radiating wishes for wholeness for all people from our deeply centered and calm spaces, just really from newborn to um, elder. We're all going to be totally centered and calm. Or maybe more so, just a little, just a little. Wholeness is our theme of the month um, in April. And, you know, when we plot out our um, platforms for a month, we really try to get a good mix of different topics. So we'll, we'll sit around, you know, staff and lay people and we'll say, oh, well, we had a social justice one. And so we need to have one that's more like pastoral or personal. And, you know, we need to have something relating to current events. And what are we, um, what are we sort of due for here? And um, how do we create a balance? And so when we looked at the calendar this month and what we had done in March, what I put in was um, something philosophical. That was my note to myself. Something philosophical. I don't know if you remember those memes that people shared a little while ago about their jobs. They were popular a couple of years ago, right? Like it was like what my parents think I do and what my friends think I do and what I really do, right? I believe that a lot of people actually imagine that my job includes a great deal of me sitting around thinking deep philosophical thoughts trying to sort out the meaning of life and the reality of existence. And I do believe that there are clergy who do that, who, you know, either because they are so disposed or because they think that the reality of, of existence is somehow actually knowable in a way that I don't. The what I actually do part of my job meme, if I were creating it, would definitely be like, talk with people about their problems and administer a small nonprofit. Wonder whether we should bother fixing the toilets in the downstairs bathroom, or is the leak really small enough that we shouldn't worry about it? And think about the core values that I hope our children leave our Sunday school education program knowing, while every once in a while realizing that I ought to do something philosophical. At this point, you may be wondering whether I plan to actually say something philosophical or just spend the entirety of the platform complaining that I promised to, but I will. And eventually, I'm hopeful that the fact that I don't wax philosophical that frequently will actually be part of my philosophical point. That's very meta. Wholeness actually has rather a lot of philosophical kind of juiciness to it. At the end of this month, we'll be talking about the idea that we are simultaneously perfect and whole beings while being at the same time imperfect and broken all at once, which is essentially a philosophical idea, right? One that is about how we think about things. 
Today, I wanted to address an idea that has actually suddenly felt rather fresh to me, the idea of being a body and a mind, or rather, a body that holds a mind, or maybe a body mind, or maybe just a body, right? You can see how philosophical it is because we aren't even sure how to name it. I'm sure that choosing that title would be at least two PhD dissertations. 15 years each. It feels, um, <laughs> yeah, someone studied philosophy. <clears throat> it feels fresh, actually, because the board has been inviting engagement with our ends statements. Raise your hand if you know what our end statements are. Oh, great, good. <laughs> the board member knows. That's wonderful. I'm glad. Um, Wes has four statements that we think of as sort of our North Star, like what it is that we're trying to move toward all the time. We won't ever actually achieve them because they're things like, you know, a magical world of complete acceptance and unicorns. But we're trying to get there, right? And then we create our goals for each year in more achievable ways that we think will draw us closer to what it is that we are trying to do in the world and who we are trying to be in the world. These ends statements, the, the sort of final end or aim of the congregation. Funny story, when we first had the end statements, we sent out an email to everybody announcing them. They had been approved by the membership at a congregational meeting. And we unfortunately titled the email, Wes Ends. <laughs> And I got a couple of responses. I was worried, but these look nice. So, um, so the board has been inviting engagement. Oh, they wrote a blog, and um, Kate Lang, one of the board members, has been staffing a table out in the lobby, inviting folks to come and interact with the ends. Every five years, we look at our ends, and we think about whether they serve us uh, perfectly or whether there's any language that we wish we could change or, you know, is there some new North Star? And I suspect that they're going to stay relatively the same based on the feedback that the board's been starting to get that they've shared with, with me. But, um, but there's one in particular that has had the most engagement from folks. And it's actually one that mentions wholeness and mentions the idea of mind and body and spirit, in fact. It's, Wes nurtures children, youth, and adults as whole beings, dash, mind, body, and spirit, dash, who seek their best selves in relationship with others. So somehow my platform planning self knew that we as a community wanted to have a conversation about what that all meant, about wholeness on a philosophical level, and to talk about those three words, mind, body, and spirit, and what they mean to us or don't mean to us. I think what the board's been hearing is that when most folks are interacting with or reacting to the words in that end statement, they're thinking about the spirit part and wondering what exactly that word means, what we intend it to mean in a humanist community, and what does it mean to them. And it's one of those words that means something quite different to different people, right? And I'm actually not going to talk that much about that today, although I did just write an article on spirituality and ethical culture for the journal the AEU does. So obviously, you'll be keeping you know, your email just constantly refreshed to see when that comes out. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Bailey. Yeah, that's nice of you. <laughs> 
But some of the folks interacting with this statement are getting a little closer to what it is that particularly interests me today. They are wondering about the idea that our bodies and our minds, not even to mention our spirits, right, are separate parts of a whole, rather than, as really any brain surgeon could tell you, our minds being one of the organs of our body. It is, in fact, in there, right? That idea <clears throat> of the, the separation of ourselves into these kind of composite parts has a long and storied philosophical, ding, 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 and, uh, and theological history. And it's gotten into our consciousness in really interesting ways, I think, if not into our actual understanding of how we work, our sort of into our imagined understanding of ourselves in a particular way, how we think about ourselves. So it goes all the way back to Plato and Aristotle, and, and actually much further, but for sort of influences in the Western mind and the Western understanding and philosophy. Aristotle actually believed that there were three kinds of souls, all of them separate from the body, so separate entities and things, but all of them extinguished when a body dies. Plato, on the other hand, believed in just the one soul, but that it was potential to migrate out of the body, to migrate to a different body. That is, it existed so separately from the body that it could exist without the body's aliveness. Obviously, that kind of concept ties into ideas of reincarnation, as understood in a variety of religious and philosophical traditions often associated with Hinduism, but also found in indigenous traditions in Australia and South America, and as we've just seen in ancient Greek philosophy. Most, though not quite all, forms of Christianity don't believe in reincarnation, but they do believe that the soul exists outside of the body and that it can exist after the body's demise. Right, that's what it means, right, to go to heaven after you die, sort of. It's a little stickier than that. Certainly, that's the kind of American mainline Protestant understanding that's taught in most Protestant churches in America. This idea that immediately after we die, our souls go to another plane of existence, ideally heaven, <clears throat> and that we no longer need our bodies. The biblical version and sort of the Orthodox Christian version is actually rather different. I have such a clear memory of being in systematic theology, um, a class um, that I had to take for two semesters in seminary and which had um, relatively little bearing ultimately on uh, my work, but which explored sort of theological and philosophical ideas and underpinnings of Christianity. I remember a professor standing there and talking about the idea, his, um, his belief and understanding that most Christian preachers were teaching the resurrection totally wrong. It's not that right after you die, your soul goes up to heaven. In fact, the resurrection is a Great good morning, he said, right? Many years in the future, at the time of a resurrection, all people, um, you know, depending if you're a universalist or some few number of people, um, are, have their souls and bodies resurrected. Now, there's about 2,000 years of debate over whether that's the bodies that they lived in 
or a spiritual body, which is just like the body you lived in, but like the 2.0 version, uh, no trick knees, right? Um, or, um, and so, so there's a great deal of debate between those two, but it's quite a different understanding of the body's engagement in resurrection than we sometimes popularly think about within Christianity. And in fact, if you go to the biblical accounts of Jesus' resurrection, particularly in some of the Gospels, you'll find a very fully embodied resurrection. In fact, part of the proof that Jesus has been resurrected as he teaches to um, the folks with him is to show them the flesh wounds that he continues to hold, right? There, look, you can see the flesh wounds, this very embodied resurrection, his soul and his body. I can just see you all going home to your friends and saying, yes, I went to the Ethical Society where we talked about Jesus' flesh wounds <clears throat> during his resurrection, which is not maybe our typical fare. So, But it's interesting to think about the ways over centuries and centuries, our collective unconscious, our collective understanding of mind and body have been both connected and separate. The most influential Western philosopher on body-mind stuff, I would say, is still Rene Descartes. He of, I think, therefore, I am, right? Cogito ergo sum, those of us who took Latin for any period of time remember that phrase, right along with veni, vini, vici, and then we're done. Really, waney, weedy, weeky. Which is really, I think, therefore, I am, is essentially his sort of entire point in body-mind dualism. Descartes wrote, but what then am I? A thing that thinks. What is that? a thing that doubts, understands, affirms, denies, wills, refuses, and which also imagines and senses. He described the mind in that way, a thing that thinks, whereas a body, he said, is an extended thing, a a thing fundamentally different than a thing that thinks and therefore separate. He wrote, I am present to my body, not merely in the way a seaman is present to his ship, but I am tightly joined. Notice, though, that the am, the I, continues to be the mind, the thing that thinks. The I is tightly joined to the body. And so to speak, he writes, mingled together with it, so much so that I make up one single thing with it. Scott Califf um, at Ohio Wesleyan University writes, the place where this joining of the thing that thinks, the I, with this extended thing, the body, I'm not quite sure how to describe my, here you go, the I. Oh, well, actually, Descartes about to tell us. The place where this joining was believed by Descartes to be especially true was the pineal gland, the seat of the soul. Descartes writes, although the soul is joined to the whole body, there is yet in the body a certain part in which it seems to exercise its functions more specifically than in all the others. I find evidence that the part of the body in which the soul exercises its functions immediately is solely the innermost part of the brain, namely a certain very small gland. Like, kind of right, a little. Descartes by now is starting to sound positively scientific. So here's where we make 
the bend in the road. We actually know, because now we have MRIs and brain surgery and such, that much of what theologians and philosophers understood as our soul or our mind is very much part of our body. And yet, despite all we know about neurons and what we're discovering about the weird neurons in your gut, where you actually, you know, the reason, right? Isn't that wild? You have neurons in your gut, and that's why you feel anxious in your stomach. I don't quite understand it. But, but even despite all our knowledge about the connectedness of every portion of our body, we still talk about a mind-body connection in popular culture. We still have some understanding, at least in our imaginations or our colloquial conversation, of a kind of dualism. So what is that about? We science people, why don't we just say a neuron hand connection or something? It wouldn't quite read the same on the cover of like a yoga magazine, right? You know, nurture your neuron hand connection. But still, I think that often what we mean is something a little more subtle. We are, in a way, returning to Descartes' idea that there can exist in our mind things outside of reality, things that we feel or that we imagine, things that are more subjective, while our bodies feel somehow more part of cold, hard reality, right? You can see a cut that bleeds on your skin. You cannot see the inner workings of people's feelings. Think about the difference that remains in our approach within our own attitudes or the healthcare system at large, not that it's really doing great on anything right now, but between how we treat physical, viewable, bodily, quote-unquote, symptoms versus how we treat and address and even are aware of and connected to mental health systems that are in our minds primarily. Or think about how many people are told when experiencing bodily symptoms that it's all in their minds, as though that's not also real, right? Researchers are beginning to debunk even this kind of remnant of dualism, though. There's a New York Times article by Gretchen Reynolds talking about broken heart syndrome. For thousands of years, people have talked about having a broken heart, right? A metaphorical one. Here's what Reynolds writes. Poets and politicians have long known that hearts and minds are linked. Now neuroscientists and cardiologists have shown again in a study published this month in the European Heart Journal that the connection is more than metaphorical. It turns out that those afflicted by a rare serious condition known as broken heart syndrome have brains that work differently from those of healthy people, suggesting that what happens in the head can hurt the heart. The condition is known as ta uh, Takatsubo syndrome. Um, it, let's see, you, I'm gonna just have to quote her. I, usually follows the experience of extreme stress, such as that felt after the loss of a loved one. It is marked by an abrupt weakening and bulging of the heart until it begins to resemble a narrow-necked Japanese octopus trap called a takotsubo. The doctor who discovered the syndrome was Japanese, who first described it. The disorder, which mostly strikes women and which, while occasionally fatal, tends to resolve over time, is connected to the brain and its control over how the nervous system handles stress. 
broken heart syndrome. We see it all over the place. The ways that we think it's all in our minds or even a stranger articulation our bodies, not just in the brain part of our bodies, but showing up all over. I am a firm believer that the brain has capacities to heal and not to heal in ways that seem mysterious to us only because we do not yet fully understand them. As someone who is privileged to walk with people and with their loved ones through the final days and weeks of life, I have so often seen um, the capacity of a person close to death to essentially choose the day or the time that they go, to wait until someone has arrived or alternately to wait until a beloved caregiver has left the room before their body shuts down finally. It is an amazing and true phenomenon. We have more control than we realize in those final moments. This mysterious to us sort of um, ways in which I would in which we are connected, what, which I would ultimately call not a mind-body connection, but rather avoiding that dualism, the awareness of the reality that the mind is of and with and in the body. And with all that, all of that awareness and all of those scientific studies, I still somehow resonate with that mind and body connection, even the mind, body, and spirit phrase. Now, this is not an argument for keeping that phrase in our ends. It doesn't matter what I resonate with. I'm always for language that invites in the most people in the room. But still, why? Why, with all that I've just said about rejecting that dualism and understanding ourselves as really one, with what I know of science and what I believe about the body, how is it that is still somehow useful to me to think about myself in multiple ways? I have certainly felt in a very low-key way, and perhaps you have as well, sometimes that my body is doing one thing while my mind is in another place. Most disturbingly, that happens when I'm driving and I suddenly realize that I'm further along on the road than I kind of knew I was. Has that happened to you? And then you think, aren't I glad that I kept driving appropriately while apparently I was thinking of something else? In much more significant ways, people who have experienced trauma sometimes have disconnections between mind and body that are intense and both protective and challenging. I was speaking recently with someone who has experienced significant trauma. They described dissociation as a kind of out-of-body experience, like being in a dream or observing the body self that they have. Dissociation is actually a coping technique during trauma and a highly effective one. It can be protective of the person. 
And it can also at the same time be important for folks who have experienced trauma to also have experiences of grounding within their bodies, to find ways to reclaim that particular integration and wholeness. One of the things that I'm aware of whenever we do and teach meditation techniques is that for folks who have experienced trauma, meditation techniques that take you away, that invite your mind to leave the present moment and, and sort of move away from where you are can be uh, deeply challenging and troubling. And in fact, instead, there are meditation techniques that can ground you in the present moment, the here and now, right here, your body, how you feel in this moment, the space around you. In the end, a lot of the felt experience of mind versus body and that strangely felt sense of dualism, despite our knowledge of the oneness, comes down to the experience, I think, of embodiment, of what it means for we humans, who, as Descartes pointed out, can imagine with the things that think all kinds of things that are not, in fact, reality and yet are bound by the reality of our bodies. We cannot, as yet, escape them fully, although meditative techniques or traumatic protective instincts or mind-altering drugs can offer an experience away from our bodies. Ultimately, we return to them, at least in the reality that I have experienced. I like to think of myself as more interested in that experience, the body-bounded one, than in the life of the mind. It's why you don't get big idea platforms from me, but uh, uh, instead, every once in a while, something philosophical. In the end, for me, the theories about how all of this works, the mind and body connection, the theology about whether our spirits are connected to our bodies or can exist without them, philosophy about dualism, it's less interesting to me than how it feels to be in this world, how it feels to be this one whole person that sometimes feels made up of different parts. I may not be philosophical, but I do love me some metaphor. And for me, the idea of a body-mind connection or a sense of spirit, for that matter, are ways of naming the sense that I am a whole person and that sometimes that wholeness feels made of some sort of distinct aspects of who I am. Paradoxically, for me at least, your mileage may vary, naming the parts reminds me of the wholeness, of the all, that I am. Philosophy has mostly seemed to me to be ways of describing the mysterious and the unknown, ways of thinking about things that we aren't actually sure about, and that mostly I don't need to know. You know, if it turns out that we are all in one giant computer simulation, does it really matter? I still have to get the kids off to school on time, right? But when we do pause, when we use those minds that can think things, we may have moments of seeing more clearly the all that we are. The way that the pieces of us are connected to each other and simultaneously fully the same. 
and the all that is around us, to know how whole I am and how that means that you are whole too, to understand ourselves more fully as whole beings, full stop. Don't you see? Seems like I'm over here, over here. 